Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Steve, and uh, I'm going to read God's Word this morning. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, um, the first 14 verses. And if you ha- have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 1786. And if you don't, it'll appear on the screen behind me. Philippians chapter 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, Faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which is <clears throat> for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We're in Philippians chapter 3. So watch out that your pursuit of happiness and your achievements in life don't take away your reason to rejoice in Jesus. Watch out so that no one comes along and convinces you otherwise as well. And it's these two imperatives today in the word rejoice and watch out that we're going to unpack. So let's jump straight into it. Verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and it is a safeguard for you. So Paul here wants the Christians to actively, intentionally rejoice in the Lord. Why? It's a safeguard for them. 
safeguard is being firm and stable and secure. Paul says, I want you guys to be secure in the Christian life. And one way that happens is when you, when we rejoice in the Lord. So consider four things about rejoicing in the Lord that I see here. And they start long and they get shorter. Rejoice is a command, which means we must be aware of the times when we are blinded, distracted, or too busy to find infinite joy we long for in God. To say it another way, because it's a command, it means we may live the opposite and need to be told to do it again. But being told to rejoice, it might sound strange, you'd be happy, um, but it's actually not a problem. Because when something is beautiful, admirable, delightful, we tell others. We tell them because we want them to praise and enjoy this thing too. Whether it's a car or the sport team that won or the achievement at work, you want people to praise and celebrate the artwork, that's with you, right? I asked a friend this week about a restaurant he praised many months back because I thought, I want to take Natasha there. Or, if you've ever renovated your house, you may say to a friend, do you know a good tradesman? On your praise, I want to hire them. I talked talking with Stephen this morning about the very, this very thing and something wasn't working. We, on the praise of another, we want to rejoice, we want to enjoy that as well. So to hear a command like this that says rejoice in the Lord means to praise and enjoy God because you might forget it. Secondly, rejoicing in Jesus, we rejoice in Jesus because Jesus is the visible manifestation of the excellencies of God. Joe, you might just have to click through that for me. Point two, rejoice in Jesus because Jesus is the visible manifestation of the excellencies of God. And that goes all the way back to Philippians 2, 1 to 11. As we think of God's character and nature and glory, as we contemplate Him, we must come back to Jesus, the visible image of God. Because it's because of Him, you see, that we are able to know how beautiful and excellent and wonderful God truly is. And so we rejoice because we want to enjoy the God, our God, as He truly is. Thirdly, it also means that We rejoice because it's an essential part of knowing God. Rejoice because it's an essential part of knowing God. We long for joy and happiness. We go after it. We spend our life looking for it, trying to buy it, trying to have it, relationship after relationship, job change after job change. And regardless if you have a less is more or more more is more approach to life, happiness and satisfaction are key drivers for us as people. And God made us this way actually. We're wired to find happiness and joy and satisfaction. So to say rejoice in the Lord means to, def- means to find the source of our longings and desires, not in the things of my life, but in the God who's made them all for His glory, which means an essential part of knowing God is the joy of knowing God. That's why Paul says rejoice in the Lord. Moreover, just as with property, location, 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 so too that matters here because the command is to rejoice in the Lord, right? Gary Miller has reminded us of this in the book that you may have read. He says, we cannot meet with our beautiful God, with our beautiful and powerful God without being deeply affected. And he encourages us to read the Bible to meet with our beautiful, powerful God. And one impact of that is deep, satisfying joy in him. 
So when you hear the command, rejoice in the law, the question which we should ask ourselves is, wait a minute, do I find this sort of joy, this deep, beautiful, powerful God, do I find joy in Him? Christianity is and should be a happy religion, yes. Have you forgotten this joy? Maybe a reason you've forgotten it is exactly what Paul then goes on to talk about. The fourth reason for rejoicing is what verses 2 to 14 unpack for us. He says, rejoice is a safeguard because if we do not watch out, then we have nothing to rejoice in. See, Paul's point is that if you don't watch out, you may turn away from the gospel and therefore you cannot rejoice in the Lord if you no longer love Jesus. You're left with no reason for joy which is a, a way of introducing and bringing us to the big idea for today, to watch out that your pursuit of happiness, your achievements in life, I missed a whole point, didn't I? We'll go to here. Watch out that your pursuit of happiness and your achievements in life don't take away your reason to rejoice in Jesus. That's his point. That's the big idea. Because if you don't watch out you, and you turn away from Jesus, you can't rejoice in him. So watch out that no one comes along your way and convinces you otherwise. Watch out that your own internal self doesn't convince you otherwise anyway as well. And so to show us this, Paul now turns to his own life and he essentially deconstructs his life before Jesus, telling the Philippian Christians and us too to be careful so that no one convinces us there is greater joy found away from Jesus. That's why he says to watch out. And it's a strange transition to have the command to watch out in verse 1, and then right away in verse 2, he then says some of the harshest words you probably will hear from Paul, watch out for those dogs, watch out for those evildoers, watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. Now, behind each of those commands, the NIV doesn't translate it, but is the phrase, watch out. The ESV does. It might say, look out, if you have that. He emphasized every time, watch out, watch out, watch out. And every word there begins with the same letter as well in the Greek. The idea is that he's being very strong, very purposeful in what he's writing here. But he's doing it because he's, he's using a play on words as well. The people that Paul is talking about would commonly refer to Gentile people, like those in Philippi, because Philippi was made up of 99% Gentile, which means not Jewish people. These people Paul is talking about would refer to the Philippians and other Gentiles as unclean dogs. It's a derogatory term. Because just as dogs would eat anything, so too the Jews looked down upon the Gentiles who didn't have the same food laws, eating anything they liked. So you're an unclean dog because you eat that. And what's happening is that some Jewish Christians now are traveling around, following closely behind Paul, and they're insisting that everyone who trusts Jesus should also follow food laws, get circumcised, keep the whole law of Moses, and you need to do that to please God, to show that you truly belong as one of God's people, you see. But in a very strong twist, Paul turns their language on its head and says, guys, you're the dogs for us insisting that. You're evil. You're the mutilators here. Why? Well, consider, to insist on those things as a requirement for salvation and acceptance before God is to nullify the body of Jesus being necessary and enough for us. 
If I have to cut my skin in circumcision, then Jesus' scars don't heal my wounds physically or emotionally. My wounds, no matter how much I cut myself, do not go deep enough to circumcise my heart, the very place where sin and evil come from and the place I need cleansing from. I need my sin cut away deep in me, not cut away externally on me. If I have to eat certain foods to be holy, then Jesus' sinlessness is of no value. And if I have to obey perfectly, the fact that Jesus gives me his righteousness is a mute point. What's the point of Jesus if you can do it all on your own? Please, please watch out, he says. Don't listen to or follow them. He says, in fact, in verse 3, verse 3, that what they're looking for, the true circumcision, you know, what they're looking for, it comes by faith, not by putting confidence in the flesh. Flesh means your ability to do something to your body and in your body at this point. And this is here, Paul now turns to four, he says, the first way, how the gospel of Jesus deconstructs him. And firstly, it does that by no longer putting confidence in his achievements and his status. You see, all of the reasons before God, confidence before God, no longer count. Not even all that Paul has achieved in his life, right? So what he does is he then lists seven of his best ever achievements. He shows how the cultural narrative of Judaism isn't working like they hope because he's tried it all. He's tried it, he's tried it ineffective. And while Paul's list, which we'll see in a moment, might sound very, very odd today, I want you to consider this story. It's famously told in a book called Don't Waste Your Life, and the author took it from another book many years earlier. But it illustrates Paul's idea here perfectly. It's one of the most quoted parts of the book, and you may have heard it before. And it illustrates how we often put confidence in the wrong place. So a couple took an early retirement in the late 90s, 51 and 56 they were, and all they do now is cruise about on their 30-foot boat, play softball and collect shells. Then the author goes on to say, tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before giving an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting seashells. He says, picture them before the day of judgment, before Jesus, And they say, look, Lord, look at my seashells. As Paul would say, watch out. Don't put your confidence in seashells. Because the question God is asking isn't, how hard have you worked? What have you collected for me in this life? It's, who will you boast in? And here's seven ways, seven things that Paul boasts in that Jewish people in the first century would put in their hands and say, look, Lord, I've been circumcised on the eighth day. I'm from the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. The law, I'm a Pharisee. Zeal, I've persecuted the church. I have a righteousness based on the law because I'm so faultless. I am so good at Judaism. Look, Lord. And in this, Paul can say, I belong. Covenantly, I'm, I'm, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. That was the only two tribes that never rebelled from, the, from David's kingship. I belong to that one that was faithful, right? I'm steeped in the language and the culture and the heritage. I've had the best training of the day. 
a Pharisee, strict, disciplined, well-respected. Everyone knows they are the best. You know, it's like going to Adelaide Uni over UniSA. That's the, you know, sorry, UniSA people. I never went to either, so. He's, in his own words, faultless. He is so committed, his performance can't be critiqued. That's the point of the word faultless there. And Paul has spent much of his life working from this heritage his achievements, his ability, placing them before God in his hands, like the seashells, saying, look, Lord, look at me. The trouble is, as we'll see, there's more to Paul's story, and there can be more to your story too than just that. Because in verse 7 he says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Loss describes damage. Like when, when a car is lost from a, some sort of crash, you might say, it's, I've lost the car, it's not drivable, right? That's the, what he's referring to. So Paul here has lost his achievements. He shipwrecked them. He's deleted his user profile in Judaism, so to speak. Can't find him anymore. Why? That he might gain Christ. Verse 8, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. It's the inner mind of Paul as he comes to realize the value of Jesus. All other things, like all they just talked down there, all other things in comparison are now garbage. And every version of the Bible, I think, will translate the word garbage slightly differently. And it's really such a wonderful word. Um... It's a crude word. It only ever uses, it's only ever used to describe the most useless things in life that should be disposed of. Something that has no value. Some older translations say excrement or dung. And Paul looks at his achievements and he imagines them to be the leftovers in the kitchen sink after doing the dishes. That little pile in the trap. The mess of nothing. Not even good for a dog to eat, right? Only suitable for the bin. That's the garbage of his whole life before Jesus. But don't think Paul is saying everything in creation is worthless or it's not worth achieving something. That's not the point. It's just Jesus is in the class of his own. He's a beauty of his own. He has a worth and a value of his own. And I just, I can't match anything up to it, right? I can't compare. What's Jesus like? Well, he's like this. No, because that's worthless to him. What is he this? No, he's worthless to that. I can't compare so much more glorious is he. It's, it's just literally garbage, right? All these good things in the world, when compared to him, are as nothing. That's his point. That's why he says everything's a loss, and for whose sake I've lost all things. He uses the word loss again, and here he means giving up willingly. You see, it's not after he wrecked his performance and his past that he kind of holds onto it in pieces. And uh, I'm so pious. I have destroyed my life. I now trust in Jesus' work. Look at my previous history, right? He's not being pious in that way. He leaves it as a fiery mess on the ground and says, I never want to go back there. I have no need to. Because all that can't help me gain Jesus. Which means his past, his performance, his pedigree isn't what he appeals to. He appeals to Jesus. And that's what he rejoices, and that's what he asks us to rejoice in too. Rejoice because of the surpassing worth of knowing him. And 20 years ago in December, I realized that too. That Jesus saves me from things and stuff and materialism. And that I gain in him all I could want. 
and it fills me with joy to give up that for him. And even today, 20 years on, and I see things and stuff, and I think, wow, isn't that nice and shiny and wonderful? My heart beats for a minute for that. And then by God's kindness, it beats again to the tune of grace. It's taken 20 years to realize that, and I still have a long way to go because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. You see, on one side of Paul's spreadsheet is his life as a first century Jew. All the effort he's done. And the other side is Jesus and his righteousness. And he just, he just hits the lead to that side, gets rid of it, because he wants to gain Christ. And, as verse 9 says, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The idea is that Paul has turned from his own ability and places his faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. When he does that, he finds a righteousness he could never, ever get on his own. Because to be righteous is the nature you need to gain Jesus. See, that's the point of Paul's life. I want to be righteous and good before God, and I'll do this. But actually, he's found not in him a righteousness, but it actually comes from Jesus. And with that realization, Jesus deconstructs Paul's life and his effort and his achievements Jesus changes his relationship to them to show him the faithfulness of Jesus is what counts. And that's the place of joy being found in him. So what can we say in summary? Well, you have to ask, and I do too, what is and how is your relationship with your reputation, status, wealth, achievements, intellect and ability? How's your relationship with that part of you? Have you considered all those things are lost for the sake of being found in Jesus? As you look over your life, perhaps there is something there in which, as good as it may be, you treasure as more excellent than knowing Jesus. You might say to me, Luke, I consider most things as garbage compared to him. Right? But you know, my ambitions at work at the moment, my retirement plans, which is not far off, my family time, my garden, my investments, my sexuality, Jesus will not have them all. I, just, I can't think of that as excrement compared to him. And I suspect every one of us in the spreadsheet of our life at some point may have deleted them and said Jesus, but then we've typed up something else in there. That we desperately don't want to imagine Jesus is more beautiful than that. But that is why Paul commands us to rejoice in the Lord and to watch out. To watch out for people and ourselves. We want to insist that you can put confidence in that in some way and still be found in Jesus. C.S. Lewis once said, we're like children who make mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea. And that is what it's like when we find Jesus. Which which leads us brilliantly into the last four verses today. How does one live joyfully following, trusting in Jesus? If we've been deconstructed by the gospel, how do we rebuild with the things in this life that's still valuable but not our oxygen for life? You see? Three ways Paul tells us, and we'll finish with these. Firstly, it's found in verse 10 and 11. We know Jesus greatly. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. At this point, it's been about 30 years since Paul has known Jesus, and Jesus has known Paul. 
And what he means when he says, I want to know Christ more, is the same way that lovers might say to each other, I want you more, I want to know you better than I did at the start. You know, I've been married 50 years, but I still want to know you more. It's a joyful growth to know the one who captures your heart and affections more and more. That's the idea. I want to know this Jesus more. He is that beautiful. But it's not, he doesn't know this Jesus more with a good wine and a nice meal. He says it's through the power of his resurrection and participation in suffering that I want to know Christ more. It's a strange place to grow in knowledge, isn't it? To, to say, I want to know the power of the resurrection and participate in suffering. That's how I'm going to know Jesus. And while Paul isn't saying, yeah, go seek out suffering and be a martyr, what he knows is that suffering's going to come your way if you follow Jesus. And if you love him and want to serve him and others, you're going to suffer. As life bruises and bumps you, as we seek to serve and love those around us, all those things and the suffering in that has been redeemed. Redeemed onto roads and pathways that lead us to know God more and more. To know the power and knowledge of God more and more. So he says, so in those things, I want to know Jesus more. I remember he's writing from a jail cell because he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus at this point. So we know, seek to know Jesus greatly through those things. Secondly, hold Jesus tightly. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me because Jesus has taken hold of Paul, Paul takes hold of Jesus his aim is not to gain some sort of righteousness. He's got that. Instead, his aim is now changed from trying to be good to the resurrection. And to get that, he presses on while holding on to Jesus. So in the parklands, the, the kids have all done the tree climb. Maybe you have before. You wear a harness, and it's attached to a big metal wire. You can see it there. And watching the kids is great because they go up and they run and climb 10 metres in the air, weaving and balancing, all to get to the end goal. And last weekend I was there with Edward, and that's him. And I watched him sprint from the start, 10 metres up and three feet in, he just fell right through the holes in the wood. But then he got up because the harness caught him, and he kept going, it held him. And that's what Paul's describing here. He presses on, like Edward running, not pressing on to gain the harness of righteousness, He's been given that. But that harness stables him. It holds him. It keeps him. He trusts in that as he goes on in life. It would be very strange if the goal of tree climb was to get the harness. You know, go up there and when you get to the end, you get the harness to put on that will make you safe. In the same way, it is very strange if Christianity said you have to work to get the righteousness that Jesus gives you. Which brings us to our final thought. We run decisively to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining toward what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. As Edward ran, as Paul pressed on, the goal was in mind. He says, I don't consider I've got it. I'm still going. That is, there is no maturity as a Christian that leaves the gospel behind. You don't believe the gospel and then think, what's the deeper, more spiritual stuff? No, there actually isn't. <laughs> it's the simple, profound, joyful message. We trust Jesus and we go to love him and know him more and more, better and better. You see, Paul says we're saved by believing the gospel and we're transformed in every part of our life and our minds by believing the same gospel more and more deeply as time goes on. 
You know, Edward did the tree climb five times last week in his hour and a half. And each time he did it, he grew in confidence, right? And at this point, my illustration of the tree climb falls down spectacularly because he grew confident in his ability in himself. What I noticed, though, was that as, he, as the harness caught him, he could maneuver more safely and he fell on less. The point is that as he did it more, he grew confident, forgetting what's behind, keeping going towards the goal. And so Paul, held by Jesus, is confident in him, pressing on towards the resurrection heavenward in Christ Jesus. And so too for us. Which means, to summarize, watch out that your pursuit of happiness and your achievements in life don't take away your reason to rejoice in Jesus. Watch out so that no one comes along and convinces you otherwise. Watch out that your own heart and mind don't try to convince you otherwise either. Would you join me this week in watching your ambitions and achievements and heart? Would you join me in being motivated for the joy of knowing Jesus more? Because he really is that great. As Paul can say, the surpassing worth, the value to know him more, to arrive heavenward, that's the goal. Let's be a church that rejoices in that Jesus. Let's pray. God, our Father, you have done what we could not do to make us just like Jesus is. And we rejoice in that. And we confess, Lord, as a, as a church gathered now in your name, that we have lived at times as if you are not the most beautiful, wonderful, valuable person in our life. We recognize too, Lord, that you give us so many good things, but they are not God. They are a shaky way to build our life upon. But Jesus is beautiful and good and secure, and may rejoicing in you be our safeguard. So, Lord, please help us watch out. Help us watch in, and may we rejoice in you for your glory and 